go before our Lord and ask Him all that's on our hearts. Will you bow with me? I will give you a moment of private request and then I will close us in prayer. Will you pray with me? Oh God of heavens, you hear all of our prayers, the prayers of your people, the multitudes throughout all the earth. We, O oh Lord, are your children. And as your children, O oh Lord, we gather asking, asking of our Father of all of our needs. We, O oh Lord, ask as it relates to our own common world as it is with the civil government. We pray, O oh Lord, for our military and, and those perhaps that we know who serve in the military. We pray for Christians. Pray for ministers who are chaplains within our military. We pray, O oh Lord, that not only perhaps our military would continue to preserve our own freedom by its actions, its right actions, I should clarify, but we should also, O oh Lord, pray for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ therein. We pray, O oh Lord, for the faithful Christians that serve in our country's military corps. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless them in their service that you would raise up gospel ministers to help nurture their faith and to nurture it well. But even those who serve in the front lines in this capacity, we pray, O Lord, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would remind them that there is only life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you'd use chaplains as ordained even in the PCA to bring the gospel even to our military. We also pray, O oh Lord, for our own uh, for uh, actual mission work in our own uh, denomination. We pray, O oh Lord, for the Wadhams as they continue to serve uh, ministries to indigenous peoples, as they plant churches and they plant ministries. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to bless them. We pray, O oh Lord, for your grace and mercy upon their family even now as they serve. But, O oh Lord, we pray that you bless them with great encouragement, great liveliness, and great motivation and zeal for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May those who they serve have their hearts softened even now for the gospel, that as they receive their teaching, their proclamation, their evangelism, that it would be received with open hearts and minds as they see transformation through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as given by the Spirit. We also pray, O Lord, for our own ministry here. We pray for our women's ministry. We thank you, O Lord, for this ministry. We pray for Mrs. Horsley as she leads it in many regards and those women who serve in leadership therein. We pray, O Lord, for them as they make preparations for transition, maybe even next month or the following month in September. We pray, O Lord, that you continue to bless our women in their work among us. We pray that you continue to use them as an example of the grace of liberality, care, and compassion to all who are members of Providence Presbyterian Church. Bless them, O Lord, in their summer studies. May they grow in knowledge and truth as it relates to their studies in the book of Timothy. And we pray, O Lord, that your mercy in, in ex- being extended to them would be felt not only in their own lives, but their families' lives as well. 
We thank you, O Lord, for this ministry, and we continue to pray that you bless it. We also pray, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost in Africa on that continent this morning. There are many gospels and many religions found throughout that continent. And we pray, O Lord, particularly against the false gospels that are shared, the prosperity gospel, or a gospel that deviates so far from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it fails itself to be the true gospel. We pray, O Lord, that you would raise up men to go to be pastors in Africa or even within Africa to proclaim your true gospel to them. We thank you, O Lord, for institutions such as uh, uh, African Bible College in the various countries found within Africa. But we also pray, O Lord, for those Presbyterian churches that seek to revitalize various countries for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would turn the hearts of those who do not know you in Africa to the Lord himself. But we thank you, O Lord, for the faith in Africa, a faith that is perhaps more vibrant than even within our own country at times. And we pray, O Lord, that we ourselves could model the sacrificial faith found in Africa even within our own country. We pray, O Lord, that that would be so even in our own church. We also pray, O Lord, for help. We thank you, O Lord, for um, the successful surgery that Molly Santarelli has received this week. But we pray, O Lord, that you grant grace to her and her family. We pray that you give her mercy as she learns or relearns to walk even now. We pray, O Lord, that the pain subsides, that there is encouragement and joy. We pray, O Lord, for a quick recovery. So quick, O Lord, that we can be graced by Molly's presence soon, not only in the presence of the sanctuary, but also in her ministry through the music within our sanctuary. Be gracious to the Santorelli family now and remind them of your truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue then also to pray for Joanne as she continues to heal. We pray, O oh Lord, that as um, the skin graft continues its process, that this would not be a month-by-month thing, but that by your grace and mercy, it could be a week-by-week thing. We pray, O oh Lord, for a quick recovery for Joanne. They, Austin Dorfs have been through so much over the past year since I even have been here. And we pray, O oh Lord, for your grace and mercy now. But even now, we pray that you would uphold their spirit, that they, O oh Lord, would see the joy in Christ even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that even in hardship, whether that be healing or anything else, that you are gracious to them. That your burden is light and that you take our heavy burdens from us. Remind us of that gospel truth found in Matthew. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke, we are in chapter 2 in the center of the chapter. In verse 22. Since last week, 40 days have passed in the life of the Messiah. We don't always get those notes of time passing in the Scripture, but it's helpful to know that Jesus has been alive for 40 days. 40 days as we approach this passage here. Mary is healing from the birth of her child, and now she is ready to ceremonially cleanse herself from her uncleanliness. 
In our own modern time, uh, women often do this, maybe not ceremonially, but I've noted that women, after they have their child, they disappear for six months. Their whole family seems to just disappear. They evaporate for six months. They may not be ceremonially unclean, but the doctors have made them so as they have to wait to bring that little one out for those six months. Mary is doing something similar, albeit something more religious in her waiting to go before God in the temple. But we see somewhat ironically similar practices carried over in the life of the church. I sometimes wonder if the first time I see a child will be the time that that child walks because we are just so careful with some of our children. Not so in the Old Testament or even the new here as we will see Jesus being dedicated and handled by all sorts of people in the first 40 days of his life. Stand then in reverence and awe as we hear God's word in Luke chapter 2. Picking up in verse 22, this is the word of God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, who was a daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in many years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with the fasting and praying night and day, and coming up at, ev- at that every hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Here ends the gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Back in 2018, when my wife and I first found out that we were pregnant with a child, I thought it would be wise for me to 
buy some books on parenting and family structures. We were living loose at the time uh, because we had not much responsibility. We were both at seminary, me getting my master's in divinity and my wife getting a master's in counseling. And so we were preoccupied for our first year of marriage with much study, but not family study. We were focused on our own books and not books that concern perhaps how we can function well as a family. And so when my wife got pregnant and we were anticipating a child, everything started to rush upon me and my household. I realized I have to get my house in order in order to prepare to rear this child well. And so I bought some books. And one of the books I bought was perhaps a book that you've seen uh, by uh, Dr. Tripp on parenting, 14 Principles for Christian Parenting, something of that nature. And I remember being in awe at the preface as he opened up his argument and his thoughts on Christian parenting and Christian households. One such paragraph stuck out to me. Before he had kids, he would teach a seminar entitled The Ten Commandments on Parenting. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And a few paragraphs later, he said, after I had children, I had to modify the title of the lectures and I had to change it to 10 Suggestions on Parenting. After his child's children entered high school, he made one more additional modification to that title. He changed it to 10 Thoughts on Parenting. That's how family structures seem to be, isn't it? We come in with grandiose ideas as we seek to raise our children well or our families and nurture them well in the Lord. But as time goes on, some of those thoughts, some of those principles seem to fade away as unattainable. They go from commandments to suggestions to aspirational thoughts. But what we'll see today is that while being a godly family is not easy, we see some principles by which how Mary and Joseph reared the Lord. Principles that perhaps we won't have to relegate to mere aspirational thoughts, but actual principles or even commands for how they raise their own son in the faith. Uh, quite ironically, it is only so analogous for us. I'm sure raising the Lord Jesus Christ was perhaps a bit easier than raising their next children thereafter. I'm sure James, as they would rear baby James, they thought to themselves, I wish he were just more like his brother. Maybe that's how you are in your own families as you rear your children. I wish he was just more like his brother. Or we're going to learn today what the parents of the Lord did in rearing the Lord himself. Godly families do things God's way. That's what we'll see. Godly families do things God's way. And what do they do? Well, first we see in this passage that godly families go to God's house. That's what we see. Uh, what do Mary and Joseph do after, uh, after Mary is now uh, declared ceremonially uh, clean? She has been, uh, after pregnancy, 40 days. She is healed up. She is ready, finally, to go before the Lord in his house. And so what do Joseph and Mary do? They pick up their things from where they were staying, and they travel to Jerusalem, just five miles or so north, in order to go and offer sacrifice for Mary, but also to dedicate Jesus himself. They went for two reasons. They went to restore Mary's cleanliness ceremonially. We'll get to that in a moment. And then also to present the firstborn of, to the Lord himself, to dedicate him, as it were. They had an agenda. They knew that it was right for God's people, 
shortly after birth to go to God's house and to rectify and to make right their relationship with God. They had laws and responsibilities to do. And so that is what they do. That is the background for what leads up to verse 22. They know they have responsibility. And so what does a family of God do? They go to God's house. It was at the time of purification, as verse 20 says, 22 says, according to the law of Moses. Who is purified? You may be confused. You may think Jesus is purified. But no, it's Mary who needs purification. According to the Old Testament, uh, some of those laws that were given to Israel were ceremonial. And what that means is that these laws, the law that Mary is upholding here, was for her own purification, pointing towards the Christ that she herself had. There are three types of laws in the Old Testament. The civil law, that was Israel applying the moral law to their own society. Some of those laws carry over today. We call that in Presbyterianism general equity. But what that is, is basically if someone murders someone, a civil law might be enacted to uphold the seventh commandment in keeping them accountable. But there were also ceremonial laws. These were laws that happened that the, all the people of Israel had to obey in order to maintain their standing before God. They would come to the temple. They would offer sacrifices. When someone was unclean because they touched a dead carcass, they would have to be ceremonially purified. These weren't civil laws. They weren't necessarily moral laws. They were laws that pointed towards the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming blameless before God. And so in the New Testament, when the Lord himself comes... These laws fade away. We no longer are ceremonially unclean when we touch a dead carcass. But now we are clean in the Lord Jesus Christ. They point towards. The last being the moral law. The moral law that is given is a law that is written on every one of your hearts. The Ten Commandments as summarized in the Bible. These are binding for all people at all times. How do you have a home that is well-ordered? Well, it is a law that is morally written on our hearts. So there are three laws, but what's in view here is the ceremonial law. What must Mary do to be ceremonially clean before God? She must clean herself by offering sacrifice. This sacrifice pointing to the one that she has in her own arms as she carries them to the temple. That sacrifice. She waits in great anticipation for the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ where she will see true purity true purity before the Lord. But what we see not only in, in the, the, the coming of Mary and dedicating herself to the Lord in purification, we also see the family of God working together and offering themselves before the Lord. Not only was it right for Mary to come and be cleansed for having a child, she is also now coming to dedicate her child as it says in the parentheticals that we have read just a moment ago, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What it is this saying is saying that what should happen in the life of Israel is that every firstborn should be brought to the temple and dedicated to the Lord as set apart. I think the idea here is that the people of God are being brought back to the Exodus account. When the Lord saves his people, what happens? that 10th plague, the angel of the Lord of death passes over the house of those who are faithful, those who have put the blood over their doorpost, but then judges those who had not through the death of the firstborn. It is imagery that is being brought back 
but also brought forward. Remember that your firstborn must be ransomed. How is he ransomed? How is he saved? He is through the blood of the Lamb. And so what would happen with these firstborns that are brought into the temple is they would be ransomed. They'd be ransomed, pointing back to the salvation brought by God himself. And you probably have a very curious question here. Why on earth would the Lord himself need to be ransomed? It's a good, curious question indeed. He is the son of living God, truly without blemish. Why would he need the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of his house? Well, I think we see in other scriptures the reason, and I'll read just a moment of them. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were themselves under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Another verse in Scripture that you know and we have read in Philippians just a few months ago, who though he was the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptying himself of the glory due his name as the true son, the true divine son of God by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Jesus Christ is born under the law. He's born even under the ceremonial law. And so he himself participates in redemption even at this moment. He will be the one that takes on himself the sins of all of his people. And since he is the one to take upon himself all the sins, this imagery of redemption comes permeating forth even as he is dedicated in the temple. But we must remember that even as Jesus himself is dedicated, you may say, well, uh, how important is law as it relates to gospel and grace? We are reminded even in the Old Testament as Exodus, as the people are ransomed and saved, they are first saved by God. They are led out of Egypt and then they are given the law at Sinai. One of my professors in seminary always emphasized it whenever he was in the book of Exodus, salvation first and then obedience to the law is expected. Salvation first, adoption. You are now brought into the home of God and now you are called to obey his statutes. You think of the adoption of a child in perhaps even our own congregation in our own society. If we adopt a child, before that adoption, they were not expected to live by our house rules, right? But now that they are adopted and brought into our family, there is a new code for them to live by. What they had previously experienced, whether that be from another family or in the foster care system itself, has passed away. You are now my son. You are true blood of my blood. You are my child. And here are the rules that are given in my house. It's the same as we see it here, as the people of God gather. What is required of godly families is they gather to be in the house of the Lord. They are called by God in the New Testament, to be in the house of the Lord, presenting themselves before God as even Jesus himself is presented here. Not every household has Christian parents. I recognize that even perhaps in some capacity in my own home. But perhaps as we recollect, we think back on our own childhood and our own families, we might squabble with how our parents reared us. Perhaps we thought our parents were too harsh at times. That's probably most likely your complaint. But what we should be grateful for is for parents that have brought us, brought their children to be in the house of the Lord. 
what should be a principle for every family in here, whether you have children or not, is that you are called by God to bring your family to the house of the Lord. That's what Mary and Joseph do, and that is what you also should do as well. But what else should we do? Godly families do things God's way. What are God's ways? I'm not giving you Ten Commandments on parenting, but first, godly families go to the house of the Lord. Second, godly families aren't isolated. This is what we see as Jesus is presented. He is not isolated as perhaps our tendency would be if we were to bring our 40-day-year-old child into the house of the Lord today. We would probably bring that child in a car seat and we would put a little shroud over that child so that that child will not see the light of day until we get back home. Godly children aren't isolated and godly families aren't isolated. That's what we learn here. What do we see in the life of those who are with Simeon and Anna? Now there's a man named Simeon at verse 25 and he was righteous and devout and it had been revealed to him that the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until the Lord comes. And in verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and then would say his own song. It seems that what we see throughout the gospel narratives in these first two chapters is whenever someone comes in contact with an angel or Christ himself, whether that be in the womb or elsewhere, song is brought out. It reminds me of Adam in the, the, in the beginning when Adam sees his own wife for the first time, what is produced? It's poetry. It's the first thing that comes out of Adam's mouth is poetry. In the same way or in a similar way as people come in contact with the Messiah, poetry comes forth. Song comes forth. Faith is not isolated. It is done in community. In community, both vertically with God himself, but also horizontally with one another. It would have been tempting for the godly family to go into the temple, do their thing, and then go out. That is what we would probably be tempted to do with our own little ones at 40 days old. Go into worship and go out. But that is not what they do. I'm not giving you medical advice here, but what do they do? They, they go around. First, they meet godly lay people. Verse 25 through 35. They meet with Simeon. Who was Simeon? He seems to be an old man in this case. He seems to be a man that had waited for the Lord all his life. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit revealed to him that you will see the consolation of Israel. What does that word consolation mean? You will receive and see the comforter of Israel, the one who will bring peace in Israel. The great Prince of Peace you will see. The consolation of Israel is a fancy word for Messiah. You can call me many things. You can call me teaching at Elder Edberg. Some people do that at Presbytery and General Assembly, but that may be too high for your, uh, for your view, and so you might just call me Pastor Scott, right? You can call me teaching Elder Edberg, and maybe I'll say, well, that's interesting. These are curious people. Or the more common thing you'd probably say is Pastor Scott, but given the circumstance here with Simeon, he goes all out. He pulls no punches. He wants to recognize the glory of the Messiah for all he's worth. He looks for comfort. And he finds that comfort in the Messiah himself. And in finding that comfort in the Messiah, he breaks out in song and he basically says, I am ready now to be with the Lord. He's made whole. 
He's made prepared at the presence of the Messiah. I can now depart in peace. Some debate whether he means he can just go home now. Uh, but I think this is much greater than that. He is at peace. He is at salvation peace with the Lord. He's ready to be with his maker. I'm always delighted to meet saints who are like faithful in Pilgrim's Progress who are just ready to be with the Lord. You see it most commonly in aged saints, saints that have experienced long life. I remember my, my friend that helped bring me to faith and teach me the Heidelberg Catechism. I may have referenced this before, but I hope you let me, you oblige me in this regard. Uh, Dale, Dale was 80 years old when I would go through catechism at my church in Lansing, Illinois. And I remember him going through the keys of the kingdom. And for some reason, the keys of the kingdom brought Dale to tears. I can't recall why. But he shared with our, this group of high school boys and girls for catechism that he had lived a full life. He had seen the Lord, and he was ready to be with him. That image has stuck with me all my life. I don't remember anything else, perhaps even in that catechism class, that I was supposed to remember. But I remember Dale being ready to see the Lord. He was at peace, as verse 29 says. He was a servant, ready to depart. Unfortunately for Dale, he is still alive. He is in his 90s. And though he is ready to depart, depart long ago, he still serves in that capacity at that church. I saw Dale just a couple years ago at a wedding, and I thanked Dale for his catechism class. And I didn't bring it up, but I thought to myself as I saw Dale in his 90s, still in great shape, which is unfortunate for him. This man must really be ready to be with the Lord now. I imagine that's Simeon here. Simeon has had a full life. He has been promised by the Lord that he will see the consolation of Israel. And I, I bet day after day that has gone by is today the day, Lord, that you will send me into the temple to see the Son of God, the Messiah. And that day was that day. He went home at peace. Often, I'm sure he was very shortly after taken to the Lord. But he's not the only person that the Lord meets in this passage. Though he breaks out in song, there is not only lay people that come in contact with the Messiah at the temple. I mean, Simeon is no Bible teacher. He's no deacon, no elder in the church. He's just a normal old guy longing to be with the Messiah, to see the Messiah so that he may go home. There's another though. And that is Anna, better translated perhaps even Hannah, in our Bibles, who is a prophetess. She is a spiritual, or perhaps a spiritual lay leader to women, even in the temple. Anna has waited her life also to see the Lord. I find the aging of Anna to be particularly of note. We don't get Simeon's age, but for some reason, the Bible over, uh, overcasts the decorum of modern time in revealing to us Anna's age. You never ask a woman her age, but we get Anna's precise age here. And it's quite interesting, Anna is either 85 or 105, depending how you translate this path, or 84 or 105, if you translate 37, and nothing in between. There's no age in between. She is either old or really old in this passage. She's either 84 or 105. I, I'm going to assume, actually, she's 84. Uh, it seems that it would be hard for a 105-year-old saint 
to enter into the temple to carry the child and to declare all this greatness. She was a lady that was devoted, though. I want you to notice the devotion of this grandma in the faith in the temple. What was she like? She was one that almost seemed to live her days in the temple. Verse 38 particularly, and coming up every hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. In verse 37, the latter part, she would not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This was a faithful saint that gathered in the temple very often. I think Luke is being somewhat, um, he's exaggerating a bit here. He's not saying that Anna slept in the temple on the floor, that she never literally departed from the temple. There were no sleeping quarters in the temple. You didn't live at the temple. But what he is saying is whenever the church doors open, Anna was there. Whenever the temple was open, whenever the gates were open, you can find Anna. She was a regular face. It's delightful in any church when you see those types of saints. In Tuscumbia, I could remember Miss Carol, um, who, whenever the doors opened, she, she was a grandma to our children because our family was so separated from our ministry. She was a grandma to our children. Every Sunday morning, she was there at prayer meeting. At, she was at church. She would teach children in Sunday school. In the evening, she would come to church for evening worship. On Wednesday, she would come and help with prayer meeting and things of that nature. When we would have any event of the church, she would always say, volunteer me Scott I had to put brakes on her she she was working herself to death in some regards I said Carol you can't do all of this I had to break put some brakes but she was like Anna whenever the doors open she was there and that is perhaps a benefit to the family of God in regards to isolation when the doors open we are benefited our whole families are benefited by those who are there thinking of the various family members that we would adopt into our family who would help rear our own children. We we mentioned Carol, but Pastor Randy and his wife Kathy, they would become grandparents to John Owen and our kids. I think of uh, John and Bethany who would become aunts and uncles and their children would become cousins. That, That family dynamic that would come. The family of God is not isolated. We are in community together and that is what the family of God here, Mary and Joseph and their family receive in the temple. They receive a community, a community that longs for the Messiah. But we don't long for any of our children to be the Messiah. But what we do gather together as a family looking towards the Messiah. We gather like Simeon and Anna gather. We long to see the Messiah together. We become family together. That's what godly families do. They gather together. I'm not putting an an attendance marker on for every time you come to church or every time you all miss uh, Wednesday night catechism. It's a lengthy list for catechism, I tell you. I don't keep track. I do not keep track. But there is a benefit when God's people gather and they gather regularly, whether that be in the confines of this school or even in our homes. I desire for all of you to love each other like family. It's a desire for every pastor. Godly families do things God's way 
We see that they go to the house of the Lord. They aren't isolated by themselves. And lastly, that even godly families, this might be hard to hear, experience hardship. That's what we see in verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We see even in the joyous of the sinful, sinless nature of the Lord himself that even that family would experience hardship. And how much less are our own families than to the family of the Lord who has at least one person who is sinless? They experienced hardship. In the midst of the marveling and joy that we have accounted throughout the first two chapters of Luke, we get the first tangible bad news when Mary and Joseph go to the temple. In the previous verse, in verse 33, it says that Joseph and Mary marveled they marveled at the, the, the poetry that Simeon had given, and then it's abstracted. There is one more thing Simeon must tell them, and they don't marvel over this one. They aren't excited. They don't, the, Luke doesn't give us any context for how they respond. And I guess it is likely because there was a solemn statement. They probably unlikely quieted themselves. The discouragement or knowing that this child that they had would cause a sword to pierce their own souls. The hardship that I believe Simeon is talking about is the death of Christ. As Christ's own mother would stand as soldiers rationed off and sold his clothes and his things, mocking him before the cross and having to be a mother to watch that. That is what pierces Mary, that event. She doesn't know the tangible application of such a statement yet, but she will. And I'm sure she would recollect this statement from Simeon as she saw her own son being crucified. Yes, she knows her son is the Messiah that comes to save. And yes, she knows that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament order point to her son. But who can prepare a godly mother for the death of her child. This is bad news. Hard news. And I'm sure that you as parents or even children have experienced hardship. Where rearing families in the Lord, though as you read your great books by trip, seem to be so easy and simple. If I just do A, B, and C, Everything will work out. Well, we all know that that's not how it is. I wish my family was a mathematical equation that I could just do A, B equals C. It'd be so great for my life, at least, if it were that ordered. But we aren't. We're messy. We are messy. Sometimes our families experience hardship because of our own sin. Have you ever had to ask forgiveness from your spouse? You should have at some point in your life. If you haven't, you need to go and reflect because your spouse is likely thinking to themselves they have never apologized to me there's hardship sometimes hardship is caused by our own sin an event that happens in our own lives that cause stress on our family systems whether that be a wayward child or dealing with an action of a child that has 
significant repercussions for the future. Or maybe it is something within your own marriage that, that has caused strife. Perhaps it's even the work that you have in the common world with your careers. You're laid off. Hardships happen. Even for godly families that are obedient to the law. Even when you seem to do the right thing. Sometimes hardships are caused by your own hand. But sometimes hardships are caused by others' hand. Sometimes hardships are caused even without any sin involved. They just come. Even godly families experience hardship. And the gospel that the Lord brings will bring hardship to the family there. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a two-edged sword as we see in the book of Revelation where the, the Lord himself wields it. And what it seeks to communicate is that the gospel cuts both ways. It reveals the truth of God and leads many to repentance, but it also cuts the other way. We are reminded as the word of God is revealed to Pharaoh, his heart is perpetually hardened further. The gospel cuts both ways, and that is why Mary is receiving this news, this divisive news, that the gospel that her son brings will divide many. It will be a divider. It will cut one way in bringing salvation to all who believe, but it will cut the other way in confirming the judgment that the Lord has upon those who reject Him. It is a gospel that is hard to receive. And it is a gospel that brings hardship to Jesus and His family. It's a gospel that sometimes brings hardship to our own families, especially families that know not Christ. But perhaps you've come to faith in the Reformed tradition. You're no longer a part of your previous tradition and there is sometimes hardship that comes when you transfer from being a Catholic to a Presbyterian, Baptist to a Presbyterian, Methodist to a Presbyterian. There are sometimes hardships. Following God's truth sometimes causes hardship. You must dwell on that point that godly families experience hardship. And it is not always because of their own sin, sometimes caused from outside. So we are called to do things God's way. What, what that means is that we are, to bring our peop- our, we are to bring our families to God's house. We are not to isolate them, but to saturate them within the covenant community. Why? Because God also recognizes that we will experience hardship. And for those who are experiencing hardships today, those first two points are foundational. If your family is in painful hurt, go to the house of the Lord. Do not isolate. It is so tempting in hardship to isolate. It is so tempting to be by yourself. But what the Lord for your family requests is to not isolate, to be in community. And what better picture then as we close our service today than to have the Lord's Supper? A supper that is prepared for you, to prepare you to come to the house of the Lord. As Calvin would say as we have received the supper, the Holy Spirit draws us up to the heavenly courts, to the heavenly temple where Christ himself resides. We are drawn up to God's house. But not only are we drawn up to be with God himself, we are drawn together. You're reminded, as I often warn you, wait to take the element so that we may partake together of the Lord Christ.
Do not be isolated. I know many of you are experiencing hardships even today. Well, this table is for you. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and mercy that you've called us to be godly families and instead of having a platitude of perhaps laws and commands, we given, are given a great example in how the godly family of the Lord himself sought to honor you as righteous believers in your house. May we be like Mary and Joseph in this passage. May we be a people that gather into the house of the Lord that are not isolated, and that even in hardship, we see your grace and mercy by your covenant people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.